0: latest installment in HSF's Future of Consumer series. My name is Aoife Zureb, I'm a partner in our Melbourne office and I am delighted to be joined by my colleague Dana Kim who is a partner in our Seoul office. Hi Dana. Hello. Today we will be speaking about product liability issues in a digital world. There are many different angles that we could take with this But Dana and I saw that the most helpful way to tease some of these issues out in a short video like this is to frame them up through a short hypothetical scenario. So the hypothetical scenario is this. We have a manufacturer of children's toys who's based in China. The toys contain a button battery manufactured by a company headquartered in Seoul. The toys are sold both online on an e-commerce platform to customers based in Australia, the US and Asia, And they're also imported by toy companies based in Australia, the US and Asia, who supply them to local toy stores. Neither manufacturer has a place of business in Australia. An issue has arisen with the toys where the button battery becomes dislodged. And there have been many many incidents of children swallowing the button battery and suffering serious injuries and in some cases death. The toy manufacturer is now facing multiple claims from customers in the US, Australia and Asia. Some customers are relying on the terms and conditions, including an arbitration clause on the manufacturer's website and arguing that the matter should go to arbitration. Customers in Australia have spoken to plaintiff law firms and are threatening a class action against both manufacturers and the local importer. So Dana, this is a a supply chain between the Korean button battery manufacturer, the Chinese toy manufacturer and customers. The hypothetical refers to the possibility of an arbitration against the toy manufacturer in the U.S. Would it be possible for customers to bring a claim against the button manufacturer in the same arbitration?
1: Yes, in the hypothetical question, um, there is an arbitration clause in the terms and conditions on the website. The arbitration clause, as found on the toy manufacturer's website, is noteworthy because we are seeing an increasing number of arbitration provisions in terms and conditions, product packaging, warranties, user manuals in the customer product industries, including laptops and smartphones. The battery manufacturer is not a party to the arbitration agreement in this case. Generally, a non-signatory to an arbitration agreement may only be compelled to arbitrate when the non-signatory knowingly exploits the benefit from the contract containing the arbitration provision and receives benefit directly from the contract, um, for example, under New York law. So, in our case, the battery manufacturer can argue that they should not be compelled to arbitration because it had not benefited directly from the sale of the toy. For example, it did not receive a direct payment from the contract between customers and the toy manufacturer. So it will be challenging for customers to bring a claim against the battery manufacturer in the same arbitration against the toy manufacturer. So then probably the next question is what strategy the plaintiff lawyers will take in these type of cases in the U.S. If damages are not significant, plaintiff lawyers would try to commence arbitration against the toy manufacturer only under the terms and conditions, because they will think it will be sufficient to just have one defendant, and also arbitration is generally a quicker, private, and cheaper way to resolve disputes. But if damages are significant, then plaintiff lawyers might try to commence litigation, rather than arbitration, in order to bring a claim against all the parties in the supply chain. This is because product liability law in the US does not require the privity of contract, and therefore the injured party can sue any entity in the supply chain. In other words, Even if plaintiff did not have any binding contract with the battery manufacturer, they are still able to sue the battery manufacturer as well as the toy manufacturer in litigation. Of course, the toy manufacturer may argue that there is a binding and exclusive arbitration agreement with plaintiff, so they cannot be forced to litigate and try to avoid litigation. But in litigation, even if plaintiff lawyers did not bring a claim against the battery manufacturer themselves, the toy manufacturer will probably implead the battery manufacturer by bringing a third party claim so that they can try to share liabilities. The, on the other hand, it will be probably challenging for plaintiff lawyers to commence a class action because in order to bring a class action, they'll need to satisfy the commonality requirement, which means that the central issues to the case need to be common to all class members. This is a problem for personal injury-based basic product liability class actions because there are separate issues of causation and damages. For example, the extent of their injuries, the extent of pain and suffering, the value of property destroyed are all different. So they will have to bring individual actions rather than a class action in the US. I understand that the position might be different in Australia. So um, what is the class action landscape like in Australia and what approach do plaintiff lawyers take to these type of product liability claims in Australia?
0: Thanks, Dana. Well, look, the class, class action landscape in Australia is extremely active with our filings and only second behind the US. Unlike the US, it is relatively straightforward to commence a class action in Australia, and it's not necessary to obtain class action certification in Australia like it is in the US. And this is particularly important for these types of product liability cases, um, where certification often proves difficult in the US. That's not to say in Australia that when we do have a product liability uh, class action that we don't run into the types of of issues that you've mentioned before in terms of commonality or specific causation questions. Um, But they tend to be dealt with um, in various means and using various procedural tools during the course of the the class action, but from a commencement perspective, relatively easy to get those um, proceedings off the ground. So really, plaintiff lawyers just need to demonstrate that seven or more people have claims against the same person or persons. The claims are in respect of or arise out of the same similar or related circumstances, and the claims give rise to at least one common issue of law or fact. Um, Now, when we think about the facts presented in that hypothetical, these three criteria would all be relatively easily satisfied. So, with product liability class actions in Australia, it's one that we, it's an area that we expect to continue to grow in Australia. We have um, a range of funding options available here, both third party funding and in the state of Victoria, contingency fees are now available. When they do materialise, product liability class actions tend to involve uh, similar causes of action and they tend to include the allegation that a product has a safety defect and that's effectively that the safety is not such as persons generally are entitled to expect there are some defences to that for example the um, defect did not arise at the time of supply uh, we often see consumer guarantees and um, which are enshrined in our australian consumer law and an allegation that they have been breached and typically it's the acceptable quality guarantee and often we typically see a common law negligence claim as well so, in terms of the hypothetical, it would be relatively straightforward for the plaintiff law firms to commence the class action, potentially availing off um, funding from a third party funder or um, issuing in the state of Victoria and seeking a contingency fee. One question arises as to whether or not we are likely to see those contingency fee um, arrangements crop up in other jurisdictions in the coming months or years. Now, one interesting question, both presented by the hypothetical and one that we often grapple with in these product liability class actions is who the Australian law regards as manufacturer and supplier and who is liable where, as is uh, presented in the hypothetical, sales have occurred both um, through an online platform and in a local store. That's a really interesting question and one that can cause a lot of complexity in product liability claims where there are various entities in the supply chain, they're based in different geographic areas, and where the sales occur in both that traditional setting and online. One important fundamental concept to flag here is that the statutory definition of manufacturer in Australian consumer law is broader than a lot of people sometimes realise, and it it extends further than just the person or business that produces or assembles the goods. So, for example, if the actual manufacturer of the goods, as is the case in the hypothetical, does not have a place of business in Australia, then that local importer can be deemed to be the manufacturer for the purposes of some of these provisions in the ACL. There's also often a very important question around whether or not the actual manufacturer is carrying on business in Australia, and that often requires the court to undertake a detailed review of a range of factual matters, including the company's customer base, whether data is stored on Australian servers, whether the entity has significant property in Australia, the extent of its contractual arrangements with third parties in Australia. And so reflecting on some of the predictions for this space in the future, I think it will be very interesting to see how the court grapples with a lot of these concepts in circumstances where the design and manufacture of goods is becoming far more complex where supply chains are becoming more complex or where different entities are being substituted along the supply chain and where consumers are sourcing a lot of their products online so Dana in wrapping up in the time available we've really only scratched the surface on some of the complexities that can arise in these types of situations these are all real and substantive issues that will continue to present unique and complex questions for us and our clients particularly, as we said, as more and more customers source their products online and our supply chain networks become more complex. So to our listeners today, thank you for your time and we look forward to continuing the conversation. And thank you, Dana. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.